Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. And this morning, we're going to introduce chapter 4 on an overview basis. Uh, This will be a bit different from those who have been here for a while as we normally would go verse by verse, and we will be doing that in the weeks to come. But I do want to go over Hebrews chapter 4 in an overview fashion this morning to give us the main points of where this particular chapter is going. I do want to read verses 1 through 4. And that'll be where we'll start, and then we'll get into uh, the overview of this chapter. Beginning there in verse 1, it says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke, he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Hebrews 4 is really made up of two parts. The first part that covers the first 13 verses. The writer of Hebrews is completing the exhortation that which has been given to us in chapter number 3. He is not commencing a new subject, but rather he is completing the exhortation of chapter number 3. Remember, we make mention often that the chapter divisions... Uh, were added by the translators at a later date. And in many cases in Scripture, the thought would have been one continuous thought. And this is one of those examples. Again, we have to be cautioned that we don't cut off what we've already heard and to treat this as if now Paul or the writer, whoever it might be, remember we've been taking this position, if it's Paul or another writer, whatever that position is, is that it is not... Uh, to the point of forgetting what we have already learned. But you'll remember that the commencement in the previous chapter was drawing from a comparison of Christ with Moses and how Christ compared with Moses, how Moses compared with Christ, and how that Christ was superior to Moses. In chapter number four, he further illustrates this demonstrating the comparison between Christ and another, which the primary comparison is now given to Joshua. We read in Joshua chapter 1 how that when Moses died, Joshua was then given, if you will, the command of the people of God, and he was to carry out what Moses had already started. So in both instances... Uh, Joshua in chapter number one, as we read for our call to worship, made mention of there's something still remaining. There's still something to be done. And in chapter four of Hebrews, we also will learn that Christ is also superior to Joshua. Again, remember, this is not to negate or to insult Moses or Joshua, but what they were doing by leading the people into the promised land, into that place of rest, 
would not be fully completed and it was not fully what God had intended for what this rest was to be all about. In the second part of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we're then going to be led to consider the character of Christ as our high priest. That will not be a new subject. We have already dealt with Christ as our high priest in the opening chapters of Hebrews, but there's a return back now to the character of Christ as our high priest. And we learn and are reminded again how it is through Christ as our high priest that we have access to the very throne of God. So this morning as we begin this, I want to simply just entitle this, Christ the Rest of God. Christ, the rest of God. And let's begin by examining the rest that is found in Christ. Now again, in these first few verses, especially there in Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 5, as we read, he begins to describe to us that there are a number of different characteristics about this rest that is to be entered upon. He's describing what he had begun to mention in chapter number three about there being a rest for the people of God. And you'll notice there in the very first chapter or very first verse of chapter four that the promise of a rest still remains. Look what it says. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So the writer of Hebrews was mentioning to these Hebrew Christians and these Hebrew uh, believers that there is a rest that I want to warn you about, that you don't fall short of it. I want you to be sure that you understand what has been spoken about. He shows that there's a promise of a rest that still remains and that there is still the danger we learned last week about coming short of that, which was the principle of hardening, harden not your heart. So we have the principle here. There's still the warning of falling short. There's still a clear demonstration that there is a rest that still remains. So we see really two concepts here. There's a rest that remains, and I'm warning you, don't fall short of the rest which still remains. That's really an overview of where we're going to be dealing with this in a more uh, in-depth basis in the weeks to come. So the writer here is affirming the nature of that promise. Now again, you and I are not marching through the wilderness and heading into the promised land. You and I are not following Joshua, we're not following Moses, and we're not going into the land of Canaan. Uh, There are hymns that talk about we're going to Canaan, we're going to Canaan's land, and I get the illustration, but there's something much more that the writer of Hebrews has in mind, and more importantly, what God has in mind. But this nature of the promise was being made to those who are believers now in the same manner in which it did to the Hebrews of old. Look at verse number two. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. The writer says the gospel that's being preached now was being preached unto them. But he gives one key problem among many, but the word preached did not profit them. It brought nothing to them. It brought no profit to them. He adds that this is the very reason why they did not enter into that rest is because they did not have faith. That was established in Hebrews 3 verse 18 where it says, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. 
They didn't enter into that rest. Why? Because they did not have faith. They did not believe. They hardened their heart. In fact, they did, in fact, come short of rest. So this establishment of this coming short, this word being preached without profit, he goes on and he says, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed, watch this, do enter into rest. Now what we're going to see in the weeks to come is that the writer here had more intended here than just entering into that picture of going into Canaan into an actual land. He has a spiritual rest in mind, an everlasting rest in mind. He has something here that is more than what we have initially witnessed in just these opening verses. In verses 3 through 6 of Hebrews 4, the writer proceeds to demonstrate in a deeper detail about the rest that remains for those who believe. Verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter in. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. He's giving a greater illustration as to the remaining, there's a rest that remains for those who will believe. So the great object from the writer here is that this part of the chapter proves that there's a rest that still remains for believers now. A rest of a spiritual nature and a spiritual character that is more desirable than the land of Canaan. The rest he's talking about is something much greater and much more than what the land of Canaan was. Now remember, the people did not go into the land of Canaan because they were afraid of the enemies that were there. They were afraid of the giants in the land. They were afraid that they would be overcome. Remember when Joshua, we read Joshua 1, they said, be not afraid, be of good courage, be very courageous. Wheresoever your foot goes, I'll be with you. It's a great assurance of God's presence. We would think if we had God's presence, we could do anything and go anywhere. And yet there were people who did not enter in. Why? Because of unbelief, because the word did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. So there is a re-emphasis again on a danger of coming short. Addressing these Hebrew Christians, of course, he's appealing to the Old Testament. Uh, to appeal to the Hebrew Christians, the greatest thing he could do was appeal to the Old Testament. Well, here's, here's the same scenario today. We as New Testament Christians, which is, I'm saying that carefully, the greatest thing we can do is also look to the Old Testament. And not to treat these as something that's, I can't learn anything from the Old Testament because that was the old saints, these are the new saints. We only worry about Matthew to Revelation. No, we need to look back to what the Old Testament says as well and address those issues of what was being mentioned about where the word rest occurs. These expressions were all given in order to add to the nature or the character that there still remains a rest for believers. 
It would have been easy to just simply have affirmed this and said, okay, this is just part of Christian revelation. This is just part of who God is. But by going back to these illustrations, these Old Testament illustrations, bringing them to the forefront, he's showing to the Hebrew Christians that there is a consideration that must be taken into account with the Old Testament. We've talked about this. We've talked about in in days past how some treat the Old Testament as just something we read just for edification, but it does not really steer our doctrine. It doesn't really steer our direction. And I'm afraid that's a fatal flaw. Some simply say that these are just for our devotions, but they really don't have any, they don't have any weight, they don't have any bearing on our lives as Christians today. I would disagree with that and say that the Old Testament was pointing to all these things to give us understanding of what the New Testament expression meant. If you just took the, the New Testament and threw away the Old, then you would be missing out on a lot of different references that would make absolutely no sense to you as to what the writer's talking about. Yet there are churches who take the opinion we don't need the old and we just simply take the new. But these considerations were the reason that the writer gives the argument as to why they should be reminded of these Old Testament pictures. Verse 4, it tells us that God himself, this is important, God himself had spoken of his own rest from his works. When God created the heavens and the earth, he commanded it and it happened. And then the Bible says he rested from those works. Again, it was not because he was physically tired. He rested from those works. He instituted a rest which was characterized by the time of peace. And it is the very basis for where we get the order of the first Sabbath. It's where we get the principles of the Sabbath rest. He was declaring it finished. He was declaring it done. He was finished. He was declaring, I have spoken, and it is exactly as I said it would be. That is, in fact, the rest of God. But there's also the principle of the rest of God that is found around the very throne of God. There is this Hebrews 4 again, which speaks for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter in. There is a rest that is still there for the people of God. So verse 5 teaches us that there is a prospect of entering into this rest. It means it speaks as something that's possible. He's not saying this is just a picture. He's saying there's actual rest that is possible for you to enter in. The place is the rest of God. My rest, he says. This must be of a spiritual nature. And it has to be different than what the promised land was. So it's spiritual. This rest that the writer is implying, it's possible to obtain. Would God actually give us something that was impossible to attain? Would he say, you must enter into the rest of God, but you really can't get it? It's there, but you really can't get to it. No, he's putting out the prospect that that rest of God is actually something we attain and something we actually enter into. He doesn't make a much, the writer doesn't make much argument about this. 
But I believe what the writer is saying, he's saying God would not create a place of rest or say there's a place you can enter into and do that in vain. He wouldn't say, I just made this up just because I'm God. He's actually saying there's a place that there's a prospect of entering in and that there is the great possibility that you might fall, that you could fall short of this. Remember when we dealt with the messages on hardening hearts and dealing with falling short, uh, there is in fact those who hear the word of God over and over and over again and the word does not profit them. Uh, They continue to hear and it's not mixed with faith. The very reason why the people, of, the people of Israel would not go is because they knew the word. They knew what Moses had said. They knew what Joshua had said. But they said, we're not going to go in because they did not believe the word. Even down to the very fact they did not believe that God would go with them, that every place their foot went, he would be with them wherever they went. Again, now this is a little bit difficult for us because I'm really, we're doing a very high level here. We're not getting down to everything we, we're going to get into. But he doesn't argue this at point. He just simply makes the statement that God has made a place that is to be entered into and a place to be enjoyed. Now, those who it was offered to first, we know what happened to most of those people. Most of them fell in the wilderness and they never entered in. But we still have this following that remains that they were excluded by the want of faith or because they refused to believe. But then verse 7 leads us to another consideration. It says, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. It was David who lived nearly 500 years after the land of promise had been occupied. And even in Psalms 95.7, David speaks of a possibility of entering into this rest. So even David in the Old Testament was not talking about the rest being entering into Canaan. Even David had something else in mind that was not Canaan. And he warns in Psalm 95.7 to not harden your hearts. Hear the voice of God. He reminds them in Psalm 95.7 that it was by the Israelites were excluded from the promised land and that the same thing would occur if those in his own time should harden their hearts. The same thing that kept the Israelites out of Canaan is the same thing that will keep you out of heavenly Canaan, will keep you from the throne of God. The hardening of your heart and lack of belief. There was a hope, a true hope of promise and rest that David spoke about. That was not simply entering into an actual land. So that tells us something. There must be something that existed before the time of David and something that existed to the time of David and that's something that still exists today. God had something more in mind than just Canaan. Verse 8, for if Jesus, now this is where you've got to go back and do the study. This is not Jesus Christ, this is Joshua. This is a reference to Joshua. Joshua, the name Jesus, Synonymous, that's who this is about. This is not Jesus Christ, this is Joshua. Notice what it says about Joshua. Now remember, we read Joshua 1. Joshua was the one who took over when Moses died. 
And what was Joshua's job? To lead them into rest. Look what it says. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. If Joshua had given exactly all that this rest was supposed to be, okay, if Joshua had done it, I think I hope we're following the trail here. If Joshua had done it, there would have been no need for David to talk about it. Does everybody see that? There, there would there'd be no reason. If Joshua fulfilled the mission, this is what the rest was, then why was David still talking about don't fall short of the rest? Because there was more to it than just Canaan. Verse 9, there remaineth therefore a rest of the people of God. Look at the word. There remaineth a rest for the people of God. The writer of Hebrews is coming to this conclusion that there must still remain a place of rest for the people of God. Not only is this a, a, a true entered place that can be entered into, but it's a rest in which they're being invited to. This is not some hidden secret societal code. There's an invitation to enter into this place of rest and do not harden your heart against the Word of God. What conclusion do we draw? We draw the conclusion that this rest still remains. There's a rest that we're invited to, yet there's a rest we're in danger of losing or coming short of due to unbelief. To be an unbeliever today, you are falling short and you will fall short of the rest of God in which has been planned and perfected. What will keep you out of heaven is unbelief. You say, no, what will keep me out of heaven is my past and what I've done and what I continue to do. That's not what will keep you out of heaven. What is going to keep you out of heaven is your unbelief, your hardened heart. That's why we call man everywhere to repent. And when the word of God is being given, to not neglect the call of God or treat it as unimportant. But there's a danger. Again, we've talked about sometimes we are secure in our own doings, our own works, our own faith. We're not talking about a faith that is based upon what you have done, but a faith in the Christ who has in fact accomplished what he was sent here to do. Hebrews 4.10, notice or verse, number, uh, verse, verse 10, it says, For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. This adds something more and again, this is hard, what we're doing is on an overview. This is something more than just taking a day to rest as the Sabbath was intended to do. This is a rest from all of your own works of righteousness that would appear to let you enter into that rest. In other words, if you think I'm going to get into heaven by my own works, I'm, I, am, I, am, <laughs> I am eternally wrong. I'm ceasing from all of my own intentions to get me to heaven. 
Now remember, he's talking to Hebrew Christians, and for many of these Christians, they were fully aware of what it meant to try to follow the law and try to do enough good works to enter in. But just as God said, I am finished with the work, I am finished with what I've created, man is also to cease from his own works. It's a consideration that we cease from toil, we cease from the works in which we think can bring us into that place of rest. Relying on your own works, you are going to come up short every time. I can guarantee if you're relying on your works to get to heaven, you're going to come up short. If you're relying on your own righteousness, you're going to come up short. If you're relying upon that which you can do in your own righteousness, your own strength, you're going to come up short. This this principle here, the writer continues to urge. He says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now again, he doesn't mean labor to try to earn your way to heaven. But every effort ought to be made to not harden your heart. And every effort ought to be made to not come short. Folks, that is the most important thing you are ever going to deal with in your life. Is what are you going to do with Christ? Not what are you having for lunch today? What are you doing tomorrow? What are you going to do with Christ? Because without Christ, everything else that you have in this world is of nothing. What think ye of Christ? What do you think of him? Do you think of him as just a good man who's given me an example of how I might be a better better father or a better employee? Or do you think of him as the only remedy for my sin and the only merits that's going to gain me acceptability with God? Because my sin, the wages of my sin is death. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some of us, maybe you, have grown up in an environment where you were taught. This is all you do. You just do is have your good works outweigh your bad and into heaven you go. You could never do a single work that would allow you to be accepted by God without his righteousness, without his merits. This rest that was being talked about is something so much more than just getting into the land of Canaan. As we've talked about a lot, the the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ was also about more than getting you to heaven. It's about his glory. It's about the glory of God. It's not just about saving you from hell. It's about God's glory. And every time a soul is converted, God receives all the glory because man could not do any work to get any credit for it. So we're left saying, what can I boast in? How were they going to get into the promised land was by God's strength. What were they relying on when they saw all the giants in the land that they were going to have to do this themselves? He had already said, I will be with you wherever you go. But the minute they saw the giants in the land and they saw all the opposition, they said, we can't do this. 
Oh, to God, would we get to the place where we completely put to bed that we are never, ever, ever going to earn our way to heaven and you can never do enough good works that are ever going to grant you an ounce of favor with God. It's all through what Christ has done. And that's not a hard truth. That's a glorious truth when you will cease from this endless, wasted effort of earning your way to heaven. Because it's not happening. No matter how righteous we are, we think we are, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And it will always be as filthy rags. Sometimes we try to read into the scripture, and I'm not trying to do that at all, but you can almost see that this letter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, would have been an impassioned letter, because there's a reminder repeatedly, today, 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 if you will not harden your voice, and he says specifically, don't follow the example of those that fell in the wilderness because the word was not mixed with faith, it didn't profit them, and they died in the wilderness because of unbelief. If you die without Christ today, it will be because you failed and refused to believe. That's why the command goes out. Labor, not in the sense of working my way to heaven, but do all that you can to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The end that is being proposed by the writer is rest. Eternal spiritual rest. That eternal rest is marked primarily by the glory of God. Unbelief to have seen how many thousands of people fall in the wilderness should be a teaching example to us. That's what the writer has in mind. You saw this, you read about it, you heard about how the fathers fell in the wilderness. Let this be an example to you to not fall into the same trap. We as parents do this with our kids in a a more day-to-day practical way. Us parents, because we did not live perfect lives, right? We did not do everything we're supposed to do. We have a whole catalog of things that we tell our kids, don't do this. Why? Because we did it and we saw the consequences and we saw, we were warning our children, don't let what I did happen to you. That's good parenting. That's godly parenting. Some parents are afraid to show their kids that they've had any problems. I'm telling you, your kids need to see that you're not perfect. And it's okay that you're not perfect. But this is what happens by the grace of God, that what he can do, that even that person who wanted nothing to do with God and was doing their own thing, the grace of God changed that person's life. But unbelief and those that fell all throughout Scripture is meant to be a teacher. When we see examples of people falling in unbelief, Even such well-known characters as Judas Iscariot, who we read about and we know before the foundation of the world, we know he was set to be the one that would fall. Even when we read about Pharaoh and we see how God hardened his heart and he hardened his own heart, we see both of those things coming together. Those should be examples to us. Don't fall short. And then in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the divine asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
this consideration now is to quicken them to earnestly and be to remember that God is never deceived and that they should not be deceived by the fact that everything is open to God. When the Bible is described as the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the divineness under the soul and spirit, it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your heart. This is not just another book like you get at a library. And, and I'm sad to say there's, there, are, there are churches that are moving away from the living character and nature of this book. This is not like a book that you check out at the public library. This is the living, inspired word of God that will discern the intents, the motives, and the thoughts of your heart. A lot of people don't want to read the scripture because it's like a mirror. They read it and they see exactly what they are. And yet that's exactly what we need. We need to be reminded of what we are. We need to be reminded of what, what God, who God is. We'll talk more about it when we get to that. But there should be an investigation of your heart this morning and to say, would I or am I falling short of the grace of God? What am I dependent upon right now, truly depending upon, to enter into that spiritual rest? As we've said it many, many times, it better be more than just a prayer that you prayed one day. It better be more than that. It better be more than just how much you give. It better be more than you are baptized. It better be more. There better be a ceasing of all of your own works and a reliance upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his shed blood alone. This last part, he says, verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything is open to the eyes of God. Everything that we are, everything that we've done is open to the eyes of God. And then the chapter ends in verses 14 through 16 with the consideration of the character of Christ as our high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like we are yet without sin let us therefore come boldly come boldly before or under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need since we have this high priest since we have this christ we should be encouraged to come boldly to that throne because we have been granted access that access is not coming through your pastor. That access is coming through Jesus Christ. You don't come to me to get to God. What a beautiful picture that is. Because we have that access through Christ personally. You don't have that access through this church. Just because you come to this church. Or you're That's not where your access is coming from. Your access is coming through Jesus Christ. That spiritual rest is coming through Christ. That's why we make so much about Christ here. Because we understand biblically that without him and without his sacrifice, we have nothing. 
We have an encouragement here from the writer, and we, as we'll prepare to get into the more of this next week, that because we have this high priest in all of our weaknesses, in all of our helplessness, we should look to him. We don't sing songs like Christ the sure and steady anchor and not really consider him our anchor. The unbeliever could sing a song like that and not be moved by it. The believer is saying that is in fact the anchor of my soul. We sing with understanding. You know, even the hymns to a non-believer don't have the meaning that they do to the believer. They're just words. They're just, they're just notes. But to those who are in Christ, they grow more and more precious and grow more and more dear because we have, in fact, like we talked about in our study this morning, we have tasted the grace of God. We've experienced it. And that anchor of Christ becomes more and more sure the further along we go. I love what has been said by so many is a reality that in these days, an age in which man is looking for somewhere to place his hope, he's looking for somewhere to place his trust, that his very need and the need can be met by the Christ that is right in front of him. Listen, if you hear the word of God today and the word is mixed with that faith, that the word is profiting you today, Harden not your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Not tomorrow. Not next week. We've said it so many times in our churches. We're not promised tomorrow. It's become cliched. Folks, you realize we are not promised tomorrow. You are not promised to hear another sermon. You're not promised to read another portion of Scripture. You're not promised that you're going to make it home today. Don't come short don't fall short. These admonitions were given for our admonition. They were given for us, not as just some ancient people who failed, but that are given for our admonition as well. And I hope we will heed what we've heard this morning. Let's conclude with the hymn today on page number 404. It'll be a familiar hymn. We'll remain seated as we sing our closing hymn, then we'll stand and be dismissed in prayer. Page 404, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Hymn number 404.